of you might not know me, my name is Mark. I'm one of the elders here at Sola Church. All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Isaiah, starting in chapter 49. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one in the back. If you don't own a Bible, take it. It's our gift to you. Isaiah 49. So we are continuing in our series on Isaiah. We're, we're getting close to the end. Um, I'm, I'm really excited for the passages that are coming up because we're actually going to start introducing the concept of the suffering servants. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's really exciting to get into that piece. Um, I don't know if you ever have those, those Bible verses that you come back to very often, like, um, some of the verses that, that anchor you or become almost like a motto for you, like um, something you, you, you feel yourself saying all the time. I remember um, watching uh, Star Wars Rogue One. Remember that movie? And there's the one guy um, that was played by, by Donnie Yen, the, the, the Chinese actor. Um, and he would constantly, I don't remember what his character name was, but um, he would constantly say, um, I'm with the force, the force is with me. I'm with the force, the force is with me. I'm with the force, the force is with me. And it was like this, this motto that, that kind of centered him. Uh, it, it, it gave him, like, the power to go out and, and do what he needed to do, right? Um, and it was, it was almost weird. Um, the other guys looked at him like he was this, this strange person, just constantly, I'm with the force, the force is with me. And then he has that one action scene that was, like, super mad. Donnie is one of my favorite uh, Chinese I don't know if you've ever watched any other like Chinese kung fu movies, but uh, um, Johnny and his Ip Man, uh, and that is one of my favorite kung fu trilogies. Um, anyway, when we get to this passage, this is there, there's there's a part of this passage that become kind of like that for um, for me, for our, our family, um, and and it's been one of those things that we just keep going back to that that we anchor ourselves on and it gives us the, the power to move forward with the mission that God's called us to. All that to say, I'm excited about this passage today. Um, and and, um, and I, I honestly, I don't know that I really realized that, that um, the idea of foster parenting was in the Bible until I read this. I read it. I read through the entire book of Isaiah um, before, like, long before we started this series, um, and I read it in a different version, and this never popped out to me. But when I read this in the ESV, um, and it talks about foster parenting, um, uh, it, it just it just stuck out like like uh, it was it was this thing that um, I, I couldn't believe was there um, that I, I just completely missed. Um, but there's another verse in here that's also really important. So let's jump into the passage. Uh, let, me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, our big idea for today is the Lord will rescue His people from the ends of the earth. The Lord will rescue His people from the ends of the earth. So let's walk through Isaiah. We're going to go 49 through 50, um, and we're going to establish this big idea. So he's going to start out with uh, a servant's passage. As we go through Isaiah over and over, like last week we had um, we had a servant passage where it was talking about um, God's calling his servant. Here he's saying, um, uh, this servant, the Lord called me, in verse 1, from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Um, he made my, my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hit me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver, he hit me. And he said to me, you are my servant. So here we have the calling of the servant. And Isaiah doesn't tell us exactly who, like, specifically the servant is. 
He doesn't say the servant is Isaiah, the son of Amos, the prophet. Um, he doesn't say the servant is the Messiah that's to come, who we know is Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the servant is, you know, the king who is in the line of David. He doesn't quite explain it. He just says, my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So Israel itself is standing in here in the place of the servant. God is calling his servant, and Israel is the name. And what we're going to see is some of the promises, we're going to see that Christ is going to come and fulfill those as Israel. So Christ standing in the place of Israel is going to be an important concept. All right, so the servant named Israel is called to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Uh, We get to verse 6, and here's where we get that idea of the ends of the earth. And he says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing. It's like, this is too easy for me just to raise up Israel. So, um, like as an example, sometimes... um, I don't know if you, if you have kids or um, your kids are learning math. And uh, I was a math teacher for about 12 years. And so sometimes I would tell my kids, like, like give, me, give me a math problem, okay? Um, just because I'm really weird. I really I enjoy math. Um, I love the fact that my twins are now getting into high school math. And it's actually a little harder. And I have to apply myself a little bit and give a little bit more thought. But when they were little, I would be, I would want to show off my powers of calculation. Because um, over the years as a math teacher, what I would, what I would love to do is like anytime you just had a, a problem, um, I would try to solve the calculation before my students could do it on their calculator, right? Um, and it was like this challenge where I got really good at it as I was a teacher. And then once I stopped teaching, you, it's like a muscle. You lose that skill. Um, and it was like every year school would start, I'd go in, I'd have to kind of retrain my brain, I'd get really good at it, and then now I'm not as good at it anymore, and it, and it really stinks. But I would ask my kids, like, give me a math problem, give me a hard one, and they'd be like, what's 1,000 plus 2,000? And in their minds, because they're little kids, they're thinking, I'm going to give them really big numbers, and that'll be hard, Right? Um, and now the, they'll, they'll come back. They actually have harder ones now. Like that, you know. How do I solve this exponential regression? Because I've got these points. Yes. Can't do it in my head, but I know how to solve that. But I would look at my kids and be like, No, that's too easy. That that one. Don't you understand? Your dad is a math teacher, and you're basically asking him what's one plus two. This is just too easy a thing to ask your math teacher, Dad. Give me something harder. And so here God is looking at this and he's saying, it's too easy for me to focus specifically just on Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring salvation to the entire earth. Right? It's too easy for me just to rescue Israel. I'm going to take Israel and make them a light for the nations so that my gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. God is using his power, he's demonstrating his power to bring the gospel to bear everywhere. All right. Uh, verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servants of rulers. Israel is in a dark, dark place. Um, they are in exile, they are in oppression, and what's going to happen to them? Kings 
shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. The Lord is going to reverse their status. Where they were hated, now they're going to be worshipped. The princes who held them in bondage are now going to prostrate themselves and bow before them. Okay? So God is going to take his servants Israel and completely reverse their fortune here. Alright. Then 8 through 13, God is going to restore his people. Um, and it's, it's going to go on in, in, in a time of favor. I've answered you in a day of salvation. I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritage. He's, he's going to go on and on about restoring his people. And the result then, verse 13, is his people will sing for joy. O heavens, exult over the great forth, O mountains, and the city. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. He's going to restore them. The result is all of creation is going to sing for joy. Right? 14 through 21, and this is, this is my favorite part of this. For, verse 14. Israel looks at this. Zion, God's people, looks at this. And they say, wait a second, God. We're in exile. We are oppressed. We don't, we don't have freedom. We're not in our land. Like, what are you talking about? And Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. You're telling all this stuff, but it really feels like you've forsaken us. It really feels like you've forgotten us. So how does God respond? Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Can a mother, and here God is going to take on that language of like, I am like a mother to you. Can I forget my nursing child? Like, think about the good examples of parenting that you've seen. I, 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 I one of my bad habits is to spend too much time on Twitter. Um, and and I, don't, I never post anything. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll be really bored. Uh, I never actually post anything. I just read stuff on Twitter. Um, but every once in a while, like, I run into very fascinating people, okay? Um, there was a, a post that went viral. I don't know if it was really viral. It was viral enough that it landed in my timeline from somebody I, I didn't know. Um, and he's talking about his child with Down syndrome. Uh, and there are some societies that have, uh, they're pro-choice enough that they've gone so far as to fall into eugenics itself. Um, and they have essentially eliminated Down syndrome from their society. Okay? And they're, and, and they're kind of proud of that. Like, look, look, we've eliminated Down syndrome. Um, but, but it's actually by, you know, abortion. Um, and so, so he has posted about his daughter who has Down syndrome. And he tells the story of of his child. And the love of a father for his child is just so rich and evident and it's amazing. There's a woman named Natalie Weaver and um, she has uh, her firstborn has a syndrome or a disease called Rett syndrome. It's a brain disease um, and then she also has um, significant facial disfiguration. Okay, so um, so her her mouth isn't formed correctly. Her eyes aren't formed correctly. Um, and so as a mother, Natalie just does what mothers do and takes pictures of her child and shares them on social media. And what ends up happening is people come back and say, like, hey, you know, maybe you should have opted for abortion. Maybe you should not have let. And, and there's been the most hateful stuff that has come to, uh, to Natalie Weaver. And, and initially what she did was just kind of recoil and say, I'm not going to share anything. And then she came to the conviction that 
to, um, to help people who are similarly disabled. And so she started posting pictures of her child as much as she could, talking about how much she loved her child, how valuable her child is. She petitioned Twitter to, to punish some of these accounts that were some of the worst offenders in, in delivering the hate and garbage. And it's just this amazing view of a mother who loves her child no matter what. Right? This mother has just, they, they've gone through so many surgeries and hospitalizations. Um, they've moved now to palliative and hospice care, okay? Um, and so she talks through what that looks like for her. So when you think about, um, can a mother forget their child? Like, here are some examples of parents who are just enamored with their children no matter what. God is saying, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And then he adds this, because we know people, if we know situations, even these may forget. Like, you might, you might have this outside example, and we know, of, I know of situations of a mother who said, I don't really want my kids anymore. God says, you might know of these, but it's not me. Behold, and here's, here's the verse that is hanging um, in, our, in our child's room that as we went through foster care anchored us. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Can God forget us? We are written on his palms. My wife has a tattoo of, uh, of birds on her arm. And each of the birds represents one of our children. And even if she gets to the point where she doesn't remember that she has children, the, the reminder of them will be written on her arms. And God is saying, I couldn't forget you. You're written right there like I have you tattooed on my hands. I have you in the palm of my hand. And so often we've been in situations where we felt helpless in the story of a child. Where we've looked at a situation and we feel that helplessness. And we have to go back to the fact that God has them in his hands that God has their story tattooed on his hands. This is one of those verses we, every time I go, I go in that room and I look over that crib, it helps to anchor me and remind me that what we're doing, like it's not up to us, God is in control. God has the story here. We're, we're, we, have, we have a newborn with us. He's going to go home in about a week. And we have to be confident in the fact that God has his story. And, and we've, you know, Chaz has done so much to engage with the mother and to, you know, to, to bless and build relationship. We think we'll still be part of this kid's life. But at the same time, like, he's not going to be living in our house anymore. I'm not going to sit up with him until 2 in the morning anymore. You know, and, and, and on the outside, like, there, there's, there's a piece of that, like, hey, we're actually going to get some sleep. At the same time, like, you know, we, we love this kid. I just said, I have you engraved. You're in the palm of my hands. God is holding us there. He has us tattooed right on his hand. And if we think about it, um, this, this is a picture of something that's going to happen eventually. Because one day, Jesus will actually bear the literal scars on his hands and feet. Right? And, and he will bring his people and he'll say, look. Look. Put your finger in there. 
I, I bear your mark on my hands. That's how much I love you. God is the, the unforgetting Lord. He cannot, just like a, a mother, a normal mother cannot forget her children, cannot fail to have, or, or is not going to uh, fail to have compassion on her children. God has us in his hands. We get to verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations, raise my signal to the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their bosom. Your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Uh, we see this picture of this conquering Lord. He's going to go and conquer and bring his people back. And in the situation where they have been without, they feel like they've been without caregivers. Their leaders have failed them. Their kings have, have gone away from God and failed to keep covenant with the Lord. And they are in a position now where the metaphor that Isaiah is using is like, you are like, you're, like you're parentless. So what does God do? Verse 23, I'm going to give you kings for your father, foster fathers, and queens will be your nursing mothers. I had this conversation with, uh, um, with my daughter, Sophia, and I, I asked her permission to share it, so this is not a... A secret. Um, she's into acting right now. Thank you. I, should, that, that's, I appreciate that. She's into acting right now. Um, and she's actually doing some youth theater in, uh, in downtown Littleton. We're really excited about it. Um, but we were talking about we were talking about acting. And I, if, if you don't know this, I, I was into acting in college by accident. Um, I was a theater geek. Um, and it ended up becoming like part of my college. Uh, like I actually traveled around the country for the college um, as an actor doing performances. Um, completely, I, uh, a friend of mine asked me to go with her to audition um, for the school play as a freshman. Uh, and I had no intention to do it. And I said, sure, sure, I'll go with you. Um, and I got, I got one of the lead parts. And, and I felt really bad because she didn't get a part. Um, but all of a sudden now everybody's like, oh, you must be an actor. And, and so, so now I, I, I went through college that way where everybody kind of assumed that about me. Um, and I learned a lot. So my daughter's asking for tips on acting and how to become a better actress. And then she asked me the question, like, what if, what if I made it really big? Like, what if I became, you know, this famous movie star or theater star or whatever? Like, what if I became really famous? Could I still do foster care? Yeah, uh, that'd be kind of weird. Um, but, pro- but but can you imagine as as a foster child, um, if you, your parents were no longer able to care for you, and the state comes and picks you up, uh, and you drive into this this mansion, um, and you knock on the door, and like your favorite movie star is there, and they're like, "Come on in, you're part of our family now," right? Or you know, I mean. Imagine you're you're in England. You go into foster care, and and you knock on the door, and there's um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, right? And they're they're like, hey, come on in. You're you're part of us right now. If you're big into music and um, and and you love you love hip hop, and you you go into foster care, and they knock on the door, and um, and there's Jay Z and Beyonce. Like, come on in. You're a partner now. Right? Or, or let's say you're into politics, you love politics, and, and you go and you knock on the door, and, and, and the door opens, and, hey, my name's Barack, this is my wife, Michelle. Or if you're on the other side of the aisle, like, hey, I'm George, this is Laura, come on in. Um, you, you, you can be part of our family. God is saying, 
You have been failed by your caregivers. I'm going to give you the best caregivers you can imagine. Like, imagine you're, you're in that position and, and a person with unlimited resources, tons of love and care, all the time in the world for you, that's the person that's going to care for you. And it goes even further, like, these people were your enemies. This is the idea, because it's, it's going to get really weird here in just a minute. These kings and queens that are your foster fathers and your foster mothers, I'm going to take your enemies and I'm going to make them your, your caregivers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you. This word is weird. They'll lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who, who wait for me shall not be put to shame. All these people who lorded over you, your, their resources will now be applied to your care. Okay? Your enemies will now come and, and care for you. Verse 24. Can the prey be taken from the mighty and the captives of the time to be rescued? Um, and, and he ends here, like I said, it gets a little weird. Verse 26. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the, the Mighty One of Jacob. The conquering Lord, he's going to turn their enemies into their servants who are going to take all of their resources and apply them to their benefits. Okay? He's going to do this by his power. He talks about, can the prey be taken from the mighty and the captives of the tyrant be rescued? Um, if, if I were to come and take something from you, in order for you to get it back, you would need somebody more powerful than me. Okay? So, like, me and, me and my son play, uh, play this football game in our basement. And sometimes Aubriana comes and she takes, she takes the ball um, and she wants to play with it, and then Elijah will take it from her. And she doesn't have the power to get it back from Elijah, okay? But if Dad comes and steps in, like, Dad is the one that has the power now to take that ball and give it to Abriana, all right? This is what God is talking about here. You think the people who are taking you into oppression are powerful. Somebody more powerful is going to come and reverse your fortunes here. He is more powerful than the oppressors, all right? Then we get into, into chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? So the people of Israel uh, are, are looking at this and, and they're saying, Why did you send us away then? Right? If, if you're this God who doesn't forget us, if you're this powerful God who's stronger than our oppressors, if you will, if we're if we're engraved on your hands and you're not going to ever forget us and you are powerful, why did you send us away? Why are we in oppression? And so God's going to say, "Bring me the certificate of divorce. Bring me the loan papers where you were you were sold into captivity." In other words, let's look at what happened. God didn't send them away without cause. It wasn't that God lacked power to save them. He's saying, for your iniquities you were sold. For your transgressions your mother was sent away. It wasn't, it, it wasn't any lack of power on my part. It wasn't just lack of cause. But you departed from me and you went into exile and oppression. Okay? Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it can't redeem, or have I no power to deliver? He goes on, he talks about his own power. Right? 
He has the power to deliver and preserve his people. He showed that in, with the situation in Assyria, where Assyria takes Israel away to captivity, but God rescues Judah. He has the power to preserve his people, but his people broke covenant with him, and they were judged because of that. So when they come to God and they're like, aren't you powerful? Aren't you loving? It's like, let's remember why you're in oppression right now. Let's remember why you're in exile. It's not for lack of love and care on my part. It's you departed from me. Then 4 through 11, we get this picture of the sovereign Lord. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. The idea here is the servant of God, remember, who's, this idea of servant is, is kind of like nebulous, okay? It, it can kind of refer to Isaiah, and Isaiah, in some, in some cases, uh, he kind of fulfills some of this. It could be Israel itself. But I think what you're going to see is that there's going to be one person that comes and really, really perfectly fulfills this. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was and the Lord God told me something, and I wasn't rebellious to it. I didn't turn backward from it. Okay? This uh, Isaiah fulfills this in the sense that in, in Isaiah's calling, in Isaiah 6, where he stands before the, the throne of God, and he sees all the, all the holiness and glory, um, and, and God tells him, I'm going to send you, uh, and no one's going to listen to you. And, uh, you know, they're going to be deaf and dumb, and they're not going to hear what you say. They're going to reject your ministry. And Isaiah's like, how long? Uh, Isaiah fulfills this in the sense that God told him something hard about his ministry, and he didn't reject it. He didn't rebel. Okay? But we get to verse 6, and it's even more specific. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks... To those who pull out the beer, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Okay. We're going to have a person eventually in redemptive history in the Bible that's going to come. He's going to be told a word from the Lord. He's going to be in a crisis point where he asks God, is there any other way this can happen? And God's going to say no. And he's not going to be rebellious to that word. And so people are going to strike his back, right? The cat and nine tails, the Roman army. People are going to pull out his beard. People are going to spit in his face, right? If you're familiar with redemptive history, Jesus Christ did those exact things. And when you read through the Gospels, hopefully now you get some of the context. Why were the Gospel writers so specific about what happened to Jesus? They were pointing back to say, this servant who is Israel, who is going to accomplish redemption, when you see this happen, it should remind you of this Isaiah passage. Right? So the servant, we can recognize who the servant is through the suffering that he's going to go through. And in verse 10 through 11, um, finally there's this call to trust in the Lord. Who among you hears the Lord and obeys the voice of a servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So here's the call to follow the Lord, to trust in the name of the Lord, to <clears throat> rely on God. 
And then, behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. In other words, if you reject the light that God is offering, and you're trying to walk by your own light that you have kindled, you are going to lie down in torment. Okay? Rejection of God's light will lead to destruction. Right? That's our passage. What, is, uh, what does that mean? What, what can we distill from it? The first thing, <clears throat> the salvation of the Lord extends to the ends of the earth. And I, I think we, we need to make sure we sit with this every once in a while. Uh, all of this, all of redemption history that happened, um, it happened really far away from here. Okay? Um, it, it, it's not something that is local to us. When the Bible talks about salvation going to the ends of the earth, that's us. Like, we are the ones at the ends of the earth. Secondly, God is the ultimate caregiver who will never forget his people. God is the ultimate caregiver who will never forget his people. Here he talks about, can a mother forget her child? Even if she could, I won't. I have you written on the palms of my hands. There's no way I can forget you. Third, the servant will be recognizable by his suffering. How do we know when the servant comes? Like we're supposed to be looking for the servant. How will we recognize him? We will recognize him by his suffering. And Isaiah is specific. The gospel writers are specific. They're connecting Jesus to this servant in Isaiah. Right? Last. God requires repentance from us so we can participate in the renewal of all things. Here God is offering this choice. Um, let him who walks in darkness has a light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Repentance requires us to turn from our own light to the light of God. Right? How do we struggle to believe this? Okay. Um, if, if these are the four things that we want to learn from here. Um, the first thing, the salvation of the Lord extends to the ends of the earth. Um, we tend to think that we're special compared to other people. Okay? Like, it's very easy for us to place ourselves at the center of the redemption story uh, and feel like God is working outwards from us as opposed to us being the beneficiaries of somebody else that God worked through. Okay? So when we talk about the ends of the earth, like, we're on the outside of it, and we, we tend to think we've got some special position, especially as Americans, um, and especially, like, if you grow up in some, some subcultures where you are indoctrinated with American Christianity, that, like, we have some kind of special deal with God where God loves America more than any other country, right? That's, um, that's absolutely not the case, or what, and it's not what God is. We are the beneficiaries of people who brought the gospel to us. It originated somewhere else. I, I, I mentioned on, on Twitter, I, I see these arguments about, uh, hey, God has, um, God has chosen to use uh, white Europeans to advance theology in his gospel. Um, I've literally seen people say that. Um, and it's just incredibly ignorant to think that we and our culture are at the center of God's redemption story. Okay? But it's, it's, so, it's so easy for us to think that, like, it's all about us. It's all about me. Um, God has this worldwide mission, this global mission that he's involved in. And it's not that you're not special. Okay? 
It's not that like you know we have the songs like like Jesus was thinking about me when he was on the cross. I, I don't I don't know that that's actually the case. Okay. Um, it's not that you're not special to God. It's not that you have something special about you that makes you special to God. Right? Secondly, um, God is the perfect caregiver. Uh, God is the ultimate caregiver who will never forget his people. Um, but, yeah, you know this, our caregivers have been imperfect. So we struggle to imagine a perfectly good caregiver. Right? You're, you, you might have great parents. Like some, some of you, um, I, I, I've even met some of your parents, and they're great, right? Um, some of you are parents of people here, okay? Um, like, I, I totally get, I think I'm, I hope I'm a good parent. I also understand I'm a very imperfect parent, okay? Um, and some people have had different extremes of this. And if you are in the position where your caregiver has been um, on one extreme, uh, and, and we work in foster care, so we've seen an extreme of this, uh, it's very hard for you to imagine a good, good father. Okay? You just don't, don't have the context for it. You don't have the mental space for it, the category for it. Our caregivers have been imperfect, so we struggle to imagine a perfectly good caregiver. Um, the other way we struggle with this, and I don't necessarily have this written down, but um, as caregivers, um, sometimes we place too much importance on ourselves. And I don't know if you as a parent feel this, or if you've got, you, uh, you don't have kids, but you have people that you are, you are mentoring, that you are investing in. Um, there's this anxiety that goes along with it that I am going to mess this up, and I'm going to mess these kids up, I'm going to mess these people up, and, and there's this fear that, you know, what if I ruin everything for my kids? What if, what if I'm doing it wrong? And, or, uh, like, we went through uh, training. Um, we went through, like, mental health training, attachment theory training. We went through TBRI training, which is trust-based relational intervention. Um, and, and it's this whole model for parenting or for uh, disciplining a child. And we looked at it and we're like, oh, man, we've messed up. Like, oh, I wish I knew this when my, when my first kids were babies and then I wouldn't have made so many mistakes. And ah, I'd probably ruin them for the rest of their lives. And we're full of this anxiety. I remember talking to a, a friend of mine. Um, she and her husband had been married for a while. They didn't have any kids. Uh, and just asked the question, or somebody else asked the question. I, I, don't, I don't like to pressure people into this. Um, somebody else asked the question, like, are you guys going to have kids? And her response was, um, like, I had horrible parents, and I am terrified that I won't be able to parent my kids correctly because I had such a bad experience. We place all this burden on ourselves. We place this, it, it, it brings along this anxiety, and we forget that God is the ultimate caregiver. Right? That we have this responsibility to do the best we can, but God is going to accomplish. And that's what I told her that day. Like, look, you turned out awesome. Look what God can do even with bad parenting. God is the ultimate caregiver. But so often our caregivers have been imperfect. We struggle to imagine a perfectly good caregiver. We see ourselves as an imperfect caregiver, and it fills us with anxiety. The third way we struggle to believe. You, you'll recognize the servant by his suffering, and the suffering is the method by which he reconciles all things to himself. But guess what? Um, we forget that suffering is the means by which God reviews the world, and we try to avoid it at all costs. 
Okay? The American dream is all about giving yourself more comfort and security. It's about insulating yourself from any kind of suffering to the point that, like, hey, numb your mind with amusement, numb your mind with entertainment, numb your mind with drugs, with alcohol, with all of these things so that you never have to actually experience suffering. And Jesus is saying, take up your cross and follow me. The path of the kingdom is the way of the cross. And if we actually want to live out our Christianity, it means that not only like are you going to suffer, but you should be looking for suffering. Okay? We forget that suffering is the means by which God's renewing the world. And last, um, God requires repentance from us when we participate in the renewal of all things, but we so often we try to light our own way instead of trusting in God. Yeah. Uh, we try to light our own way instead of trusting in God. Okay? Uh, and and we, we have our own, uh, we look at, to our own methodologies. We look to, uh, I, I, I want to be uh, the best parent I can be, and then my kids will be okay. Uh, I, I, if I do everything right as a pastor, then our church will be okay. And I've got to do more and more and more. Uh, and and I, what I'm doing is I'm fanning the flame of my own torch and trying to provide light. Uh, and what's going to happen is eventually I'm going to run out of steam and it's going to be extinguished. Okay? God is saying we need to turn to Him and trust in Him and rely on Him instead of lighting our own way. So the question I have for you in the, in the time that we have, um, what, are, what are some ways you've seen this happen? Um, what are some ways that you've seen in your own life, like either we think we're special compared to other people's, we place ourselves at the center of the redemption story, what are some ways that we struggle to imagine a perfectly good caregiver? Um, what are some ways that we are trying to avoid suffering when actually entering? Give us an example of suffering that has led to flourishing, uh, that God has used for his purposes. Um, or what are some ways that we, we provide our own light instead of relying and trusting in God's light? This is a broad question. I'm asking the Spirit to provide words of wisdom because we're, we're technically a charismatic church. We'd love for the Spirit to, to do this. So, anyway, here's the thing. Uh, what do you think? Uh, so, I'm pretty open about this, but I've got PTSD from a health period. Um, and what I thought that that would be in the issue, so to speak, on a foster care. But, that happens home to us because of all our therapy I've done and all the work on it and it will be done on it that that actually helps us call us to take the step into the office yeah. situation but yeah. I'm happy for the suffering we <laughs> <laughs> that you know but I can see that that would be not yeah yeah yeah, it gives us a platform. When we've suffered, it gives us a platform to work with people who have suffered in ways that we never could have before. That's good. Yes. I think it's kind of an awesome set. I think I've had to do some stuff. We've had that. Um, that's been happening. 
that that would come up with these um, without the obvious the void of the disanality the kind of major suffering that is very disappointing or something like that. Yeah, that their body is actually is yeah, we can it for all the first place. Um, all the precise that we brought in as to Yeah. Willing and ready to confront suffering. That's good. I think we are special um, compared to other people's. You know, I see what you're saying there, like, don't hold that as a, hey, I, I deserve this. But I talk to my kids all the time, and they bring up the idea that you are privileged. Mm-hmm. You have an amazing opportunity yeah. in the world in which you live. Yeah. Like, you don't have all that other people have. But with that privilege, also mm-hmm. the responsibility to steward that privilege towards yeah. the building of God's kingdom, the alleviating the suffering, and the healing of brokenness. Yeah. And so I think as as I kind of come through my path of recognizing that I'm privileged, um, I, I see like what it made a privilege on the sense of that. But like, it's not something to be ashamed of, it's something to use yeah. as an opportunity. It's not something that I want to, yeah, I'm here. Right, right. It's a playground mentality. But an idea of like, hey, I am privileged. I don't have rules that other people have to overcome. Yeah. Um, like, I can value the privilege and the special opportunity that I have for yeah. the culture in which I am. Because there are people that live up to yeah. that don't have that same yeah. opportunity, that same. Because they put it close to the ground on the wrong side of the tracks, because of whatever that piece of it. I think, you know, not holding the special is like, like I'm dead, and the point is like, yes, I am privileged to come to sleep. It's not the way that's been. No, that's good. Yeah, like, I'm, you know, um, I don't take my privilege and work over, over people. I'm also, like, talking about privilege. A lot of times people feel killed or shamed, like, I should feel bad because I've had this privilege that somebody else didn't have. Yeah, nice. 
Um, it, it's interesting because I really see the way the enemy has been tempting me to make much of myself in my parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trauma class, I, I heard him say, you really need, as the one who experienced yeah. a lot of physical trauma when both my kids were born, saying, how did that impact them? And
We forget the suffering is the means by which God forgives the world. So Jesus suffers as our example, and he gives us the Spirit to comfort us in our suffering. Jesus himself, he, what does it say? He gave his back to those who strike. He gave his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He did not hide his face from disgrace and spitting. You know why he did it? Because of the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame that's now set down at the right hand of the Father. What did it produce in him? Redeeming you gives God joy. It gives Jesus joy. Jude tells us now to him who is able to uh, keep us from something and to present us before the presence of his glory with what? With great joy. It's not just that Jesus loves us, that he sacrificed for us in some abstract sense. Jesus actually delights in you. It's not just that I, I love my children and I try to provide for all their needs. It's I love to be with them. And they know that. I'm constantly barging into the twins' room and, and like just inserting myself and sitting there and like, what's going on, guys? Right? Like, they are, they are a joy to me. I have some kids that constantly are like, oh, sorry, Dad, can you do this? Sorry, Dad, can you do that? I'm like, don't say sorry. It is a joy. You're my joy. Jesus suffers an example. It gives us the spirit to comfort us in our suffering. He is our joy. He, it brings him joy to do that. And last, we try to light our own way instead of trusting in God. And Jesus comes along and he calls himself, I am the light of the world. I am going to provide all the illumination you need. Where God in the Old Testament is saying, turn to me for light, Jesus comes along and says, I am the embodiment of that light. I am the one that you're turning to. You're not turning to some abstract God. You are turning to me, Jesus, the person who's here. So we get to every week go back and take communion and be reminded of all that Jesus has done, the, the suffering that he, he, his body was broken, his blood was shed for us, that he came as the light of the world, that we serve a risen Savior. That we don't turn to some God that is high above us, that we can't know that Jesus himself came as a man incarnated in the flesh, called himself the light of the world, suffered on our behalf, died, ascended, and he grants us adoption to that perfect family. And then he sends us out as disciples so that we can go to the uttermost parts of the earth as well. Let's pray together and we'll take communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for uh, this passage. I thank you that um, we, are, we are reminded that we are engraved on your hands. You have us <clears throat> tattooed there. You could not possibly forget us. I pray that knowing that about you would propel us into mission. That we would feel safe and secure because you are a perfect caregiver. That you, that, that truth would lead us into suffering for the flourishing of our neighbors. That we would take this light that you've given to us and we would we would then be uh, the light. We wouldn't hide it under our bushel. We would be your light to the world. God empowers to do this. It's, it's going to be hard. Um, it's, it's going to be a difficult road when you call us to take up our cross and follow you. Um, it is not an easy, simple thing. So we need your power. We need the power that created the earth, that raised the mountains, that called light out of darkness, 
We need that power as we go out on mission. God, remind us that it is at our disposal. <clears throat> that your spirit lives inside of us. Of course, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.